It is so great to see you. A man dies and he appears at the pearly gates before St. Peter. And St. Peter says, just tell me one good thing you've done that would cause me to let you in. And the man says, well, there was this big burly guy covered in tattoos who was trying to take an elderly woman's purse. And I told him, if you don't back away from the woman, I'm going to pull you down from your nose ring and take you out. And St. Peter said, wow, when did that happen? He said, about three minutes ago. That's pretty funny. And you say, what does that have to do with the message? Absolutely nothing. And I'll tell you why, because it may be the only time you have left to laugh in this service. Today we're going to be talking about the value of family. And it is a very challenging thing I need to say to you, so I wanted you to have an opportunity to laugh, because we're going to get pretty serious here, well, right now. This challenge that I'm going to present to us all today, I'd like to begin with the Nobel Prize winning author William Golding's chilling novel from 1954, The Lord of the Flies. The message in this novel, later made into a movie, rings true today as it did then. Let me tell you a little of the story. In the midst of a raging war, a plane evacuating a group of schoolboys from Britain is shot down over a deserted island. Both of the pilots die. Two of the boys, Ralph and Piggy, discover a conch shell on the beach and they use it to summon all the boys together and when they do, they elect Ralph as their leader and then Ralph turns around and elects Jack, the other older boy on the island, in charge of hunting. At first, the boys enjoy life without grown-ups and spend much of their time splashing in the water and playing games. But Ralph, their leader, calls them together and says, we have to build a fire on top of the mountain that will act as a signal so we could be rescued. Using his good friend Piggy's thick glasses and the sun, they start their fire. However, as boys are prone to do, they pay more attention to playing than monitoring the fire. And at the opening of the stories, the flame quickly engulfs the forest around them and one of the youngest boys in the group turns up missing, presumably burned to death in the fire. As the story unfolds, conflict begins to emerge between Ralph and Jack. On top of that, the little boys in the group begin having nightmares, believing that there's some sort of beast or monster lurking on the island, and fear spreads throughout the whole group with there not being one parent or an adult to tell them that the monster doesn't exist. As the story unfolds, Jack declares Ralph a coward and he leads an insurrection against him. Now there are two camps. As the story continues to unfold, Jack is able to convince most of the boys in Ralph's camp to join forces with him. As the story comes to an end, it is Ralph alone running for his life. The story comes to an end where Jack has issued a decree that Ralph should be taken out. Ralph hides in the forest. They light the forest on fire to smoke him out. Ralph eventually has no choice but to run out of the fire onto the beach knowing that 
when he does, these war-painted young boys with spears in hand will take him out. A moment of desperation before the story comes to an end. Turn your attention to the screen and watch this final scene. guys doing flies what happens when kids are left to themselves what happens when kids are left without the supervision the values the love the discipline the grace the hugs and the accountability of parents and other adults to guide them and I'd like to humbly but boldly suggest that we are currently in our nation living under the dominance of the Lord of the Flies today. Oh, we have parents and adults running all over the island, but in many cases they're not showing up as leaders in our families. In one case, we have the child-centered home. The parents are around God has given them resources, but they are making decisions for the family based upon what the child wants, not on what the child needs. The children are being chauffeured around to an ungodly amount of activities 
with no margin, no time left, so sit down and ground them in what really matters. On the other side, in the second group, we have parents for one reason or another have abdicated their responsibility. One or both of them are not around. They're not checking their children's homework. They're not keeping a tight rein on the whereabouts of their children. They're not concerned or probing who their children are hanging out with. They have lost control. And time to time when a rush of guilt overwhelms them, they try to gain control back again only to find a horrible fight breaks out, not much different than the ones that the little boys engaged in on the island. A very important study came out a few years ago, sponsored by the Commission on Children at Risk. Some of the brightest minds in our country got together and began to probe why are we as a nation in the place we are at with our families and with our children? Why? And these bright peoples came to these, this conclusion. Look at the screen. Our children have never been better off economically, but have never been worse off mentally, emotionally, and behaviorally. They go on to say that our kids have more stuff than ever. Even amongst our poorest of families, our kids are struggling deeply. Look at some of the statistics they post. One in four will not achieve productive adulthood. One in five have diagnosable mental or addictive disorders. One in five will seriously consider suicide this year. Look at this one. U.S. children reported more anxiety than did children who were psychiatric patients in the 1950s. Death of children by unintentional injuries down 50%. That's good until you follow it up with this truth. Death of children by homicide up 130%. What do they recommend as the solution? They say it's not going to involve more therapy or medication. We will not be able to drug our children out of this one. They need, they conclude in this study, our children need what they lost in the first place that got us into this mess. They need what they call authoritative community. Authoritative community. Essentially, they need their parents. And they need a supportive ring around them to help out. They go on to describe the characteristics of this kind of community. They said it is warm and nurturing environment that establishes clear limits and expectations. It's multi-generational. It reflects and transmits a shared understanding of what it means to be a good person. It encourages spiritual development and is philosophically oriented to the, uh, to the equal dignity of all persons and to the principle of love of neighbor. This was a completely secular study, but when really smart people look at the truth about the family and about our children, isn't it interesting that most of their conclusions stumble on the ancient teachings of Jesus? Because he is the ultimate giver of truth. It would be easy for us to assume that the problem exists out there and not in here. But think again. 
LifeWay recently introduced a study that tells us otherwise. I've been in ministry now for over 20 years, and I have dealt from day one with the reality that the majority of church kids, when they leave the nest, will leave the church as well. It's been a statistic, non-negotiable statistic. However, we've always been able to count on them coming back when they run up against their first bout of crisis, like marriage, or having children, or something that they can't solve within their own means, and they come back to the church for help. But the LifeWay study that was recently released is now suggesting that our children are still leaving the church when they leave the nest, but now there is no indicators that they ever intend to come back. Most people have concluded, who have looked at this phenomenon, that the only true solution to reverse this trend is not too far off from the one we just mentioned in the study above. Parents must once again become the spiritual drivers of their children's lives. It can't be delegated to teachers in our schools or teachers in our Bible land and student ministry programs. You see, for the most part, these good-hearted, passionate people have been virtually immobilized in making progress with our children because they do not have the support of the parents. Or they can't really lead or direct or challenge, or hug, or touch our children for fear that they will lose their jobs or even be sued. Now, I'm not in support necessarily of spankings returning to the schools, but I can tell you that when I was a kid, they spanked kids for misbehaving. I rehearsed from kindergarten on how many times Randy Frazee received spankings in school. After visiting my therapist, I have concluded that there were five occasions that I remember where I was spanked. When I was a kid, this was not true only of my home, it was true of all the neighborhood kids. If you got a spanking at school, you got another one when you got home. No questions asked. What I tell you is a true story. I was in math class one time, junior high. Not a great time to be alive. <laughs> My best friend Jeff and I were really good friends. The math teacher, big guy, is writing on the board some math equation when he hears Jeff and somebody else talking. But it wasn't me. He turns around knowing that Jeff and I are best friends, calls us out into the hallway. We know exactly what's happening. In the hallway, he walks we put our hands on the wall. Everyone in the class, for the only time ever, is completely quiet to hear. And I took three whips on my rear end that I'll never forget. And I didn't do it. I went home to tell my mom what happened, knew she would come to my rescue. I wrote down what she said. Well, I'm sure that makes up for all the stuff you got away with. Yeah. I'm now 50 years old, and I can tell you that those five encounters of teachers and parents on the same page has not warped my sense of well-being or my self-esteem, not one bit. 
but it has reminded me that I had and I still need as a grown man appropriate accountability in my life and so do you to stay on a path of health and strength. Left alone, I start, I start forest fires, cut off pigs' heads, and start fights. And so do you. It's in our natures. Yes, in many ways we have the Lord of the Flies plan in place today in our nation, in our city, and maybe in your home. What we need is the Lord of Lords plan to replace it. Joshua said it best in Joshua 24 verses 14 and 15. I love it. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, say it with me, we will serve the Lord. Joshua declared on that day, we are following the Lord of Lords plan. What does that mean? It means that we put the Lord at the center of our lives and our homes again. We look intently into his eyes, we look deeply into his word, and we trust his plan against it making any sense in this crazy culture that we live in. We go back to his original design for the family, and we follow by faith the principles he has laid out. We need to place the family as a core value on how life works and how a nation survives. This just has to be a non-negotiable value for us or we stand the chance of seeing our society completely crumble and the church being just one generation away from extinction. Do you agree, church? Well, what do we need to do? Let me recommend three big ideas. You might want to write these down. Principle number one, action step number one, parents need to reset their relationship priorities. Write that down. You see, one of the common mistakes that parents today make is looking their children in the eye and telling them, you are number one. And what has resulted is a child-centered home, a version of the Lord of the Flies. Everything evolves around children's activities or wants from the very beginning because someone told us early on, mentors, that we should have a different line. So from the time our kids were small, talk to them if you'd like, we said to our kids with that loving look in their eyes, we said, we just want you to know, kids, that you're number three in our lives. Number three. You see, the Lord is number one. Our relationship as husband and wife is number two. And you are number three. Not only is this the design of God in Scripture, but believe it or not, folks, this is what our kids really want. And this is what they really need. Even though they'll not tell you that, they're immature for crying out loud. Don't take them by the look on their face. Lead them according to the Word of God. 
I grew up in an unchurched home. I've told you that several times. God was not number one in our home, and our parents did not nurture their relationship, so they were not number one or number two, so that defaulted to me and my three siblings. We were number one. Woohoo! Sounds like a great deal, right? Great deal. I'm number one. Wrong. You see, my parents were not unified. They were not on the same page. They didn't nurture their relationship with each other, and consequently they paid a lot of attention to us, and ultimately the source of their conflict had to do with trying to win our love. So in daylight, I oftentimes received a present. But often at nighttime, particularly nighttime, when I was tucked in bed, in my parents' bedroom, they would break out in a fight, arguing and screaming at each other. And they have no idea how it made me feel. I felt so insecure. The truth were known. If a couch were to be placed on this platform today with a therapist, you would see that this grown man still carries issues with how awful and insecure I felt. I would turn back all of the gifts if I could have parents who were on the same page and had the guts to lead me together. Specialists tell us that the best gift you can give your children is a good marriage. To let them see that you are unashamedly and undeniably in love with each other, that you're on the same page and unified in raising them. Studies also show that the number one thing that parents argue about that creates insecurity in their children is how to discipline them. The pattern that I was given that has worked for us these 27 years of parenting is still good today. Go into a quiet room. Keep your voices down. Discuss your plan of action, drawing on God's principles. Approach your child as a unified front. Don't you dare change your mind or your position in front of them. Because a child should never be given the opportunity in the state of their immaturity to pit his or her parents against each other ever. Principle number two. Parents need to lay the spiritual foundation. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We learn two very simple things here. Number one, we need to have a plan, a clear plan, to train our children in their relationship with God and how to live according to his principles. We find, number two, that the duty does not fall to Bible land. The duty does not fall, look at it again, it does not fall to student ministries, but the duty has always been in the hands of the parents, particularly the father. I know that sounds old-fashioned, but again, I'm calling us as a congregation to trust the scriptures as a good plan for us, even though culture and society doesn't embrace it. Can I get an amen? 
good you just bought. Because I want to say something to dads. Dads, we are not known to be spiritual initiators. Mom feels better in that department. I have to tell you something though, getting to know so many of you, I am absolutely amazed at what you do at work. The problems you solve, the skills you bring to the table, the troubleshooting that you do to overcome amazing things, the things that you build with your hand, the leadership that you have provided, the education that you have secured. I know you can do this. Figure it out. Bible Land and Student Ministries can't do in an hour what you can do all week long. We can't overcome the massive message that this world is throwing at our children now 24-7 in just one hour a week. It will not do. It would be like approaching hell with a squirt gun. Doesn't work, folks. Listen to the opportunities that a parent has from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Then impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your home and on your gates. You see, you have the opportunity to be in the same space and to have more time with your children. Capitalize on it. Get your noses out of the computer. Get your noses out of the iPhone, out of the iPad, and out of the TV in your private spaces. And bring your family together as the leader I know that you are. Have a meal together and talk. That's what we need to do. Parents need to reset relationship priorities. Parents need to lay the spiritual foundation. And finally, parents need support. It's never been within the design of God for parents alone to raise healthy children. You see, in the Old Testament, God put an extended family around an Israeli family. There was the extended family, and then another concentric circle was called a tribe. And they all lived in the same community. There was Judah's tribe and Benjamin's tribe and Simeon's tribe. And then outside of that, there was the whole nation of Israel. And everyone knew that they were on post to come alongside of that one family to help them raise their children with a relationship with the living God. As we turn the pages to the New Testament, the time that we're living in, God has designed the church to be that extended spiritual family to help parents raise godly children and this is what we're seeking to do at the Oak Hills Church to follow the design of God to not just be a big church but rather around the family place a supportive group of other followers of Christ ideally in your own neighborhood who live close to you who can get at you and then to invite you to have another ring of support called an area community where every home has the support the spiritual direction of an elder and a minister coming alongside of them and then we have this 
campus. We have five of them now, one close to you. And all of us are on post to come alongside of you and encourage you and to counsel you and to pray for you even today, to help you, to guide you, to share our mistakes and to share our successes so you too might be able to raise children who know God, are productive, and can move forward with their lives. This is not only true for moms and dads, but it's all the more so true for our single parents. In a week and a half to two weeks, Roseanne and I, after 27 years of jumping together in the foxhole to raise our children, we will see the last car drive into the sunset. And we will be alone again. Thank God someone told us to make our marriage relationship number two. Otherwise, we'd be looking at each other and saying, who in the world are you? 27 years, it has been hard. It has taken both of us unified, looking into God's word to help our children Follow a good path. I cannot imagine one of us being taken out. But that is the condition of many of our single parents. And they do it in this church so courageously. But we need to gather around them and to help them and to encourage them. So I encourage you to get connected. Hear me well. If you don't, you put yourself and your children in a very vulnerable position if you try to go it alone. What about the broken families and the dysfunctional families in our community that are living in the cycle of generational poverty? I don't know if you know this or not, but the city of San Antonio has an epidemic problem going on right now where not only do we have dysfunctional families, not only do we have broken families, but we have families that are caught in a vicious cycle of generational poverty. What is currently going on in the home right now is being transferred to the child, so they virtually have no choice but to repeat what has been done to them. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I can tell you that this is at epidemic proportions, and if we don't do something tangible and intentional, we're going to be in bigger trouble than we are today. And I will suggest to you that the solution is not government programs. They do not work. On the federal level, the state level, or the city level, by themselves. My opinion. It is not even in Christian programs. Programs don't work by themselves. You know what the solution is? The solution is old-fashioned relationships with charity and love plus accountability. One or two moderately healthy families coming alongside a struggling family and walking with them through the journey, helping them out of the pit if they want help. But if what they want is entitlement, their stuff without accountability I believe I stand strong in the scriptures by saying, shake the dust off of your feet and move on to somebody who wants help. I'll tell you why. Because if we keep helping people with an entitlement mindset, along with people who genuinely, genuinely want help, we will not have the margin to help people who genuinely want help, and we'll find ourselves having the same discussion next year, the next year, the next year, and on in 
to infinity. That's why I'm such a big fan of the Christian Hope Resource Center in San Antonio and the Hill Country Daily Bread and Bernie in the Hill Country because they're getting it right. When they say if we're going to come alongside of hurting and broken families in poverty, we're going to have to do it in relationship, mentoring relationships. And as Roseanne and I are winding down, um, raising our own children, we have partnered with another family in our neighborhood to mentor a young gal who had a baby in high school who's in a pit. We began a relationship with her and we're bringing all of our resources to bear to help her like we, were, we, we would one of our own. And as long as she continues to show that she wants help versus this mindset of entitlement, we're going to walk her to the end. But the moment she gives us that entitlement attitude, we're gone. And we're going to move on to someone who genuinely, genuinely wants help. Call it harsh, but I call it true. I'm so sorry for the more direct approach today, but we're in a battle for our families, aren't we? This is not a time for the Christians to gather around a campfire and sing Kumbaya, but rather it's time to take out the battle song and charge the hill for the sake of our families. The family must be maintained as one of our core values on the journey we are on. Do you agree, congregation? If we by faith do this, then the promise of Proverbs 22.6 will become a reality for us. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Time to trade in the Lord of the flies plan for the Lord of Lord's plan. And all of the church said,